This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook, Volume 2, and today is October 26, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio as an undergraduate. Sure. My name is Andy Gladding, Chief Engineer for WRHU, and I was at WRHU as an undergrad from 2000 to 2004, and then uh, Hofstra wrote me back in to come work as the Chief Engineer starting in 2016. And uh, I went back to grad, I'm sorry, 2015, and I started going back to grad school in 2016. So I've been at, on and off here for about 20 years. Fantastic. Well, well, thank you so much for coming back and joining us. Uh, you're, you're such an important part of the Hofstra Radio community today. And I see all the stuff that you're doing on Facebook, and I'm just absolutely amazed at the way that you are helping uh, young people getting into the field and connecting with all sorts of people. It's it's really uh, just amazing work. So uh, give yourself a little round of applause, a little pat on the back. and I'm doing, let's, I'm doing uh, that right now, Brian. You got me. Right. I'm doing it. Very good. Um, so let's go back to your undergraduate time. Uh, what were your titles or positions at the station? Well, sure. I So I came into WRHU as a fresh-faced 18-year-old my fall semester, and I was really excited about becoming a station member, uh, part, partially because of all the different management and pre-professional development training opportunities they had at the station. So what was appealing to me right off the bat was either being a show producer uh, you know, working in programming or doing production. So mm-hmm. right off the bat, uh, very early in my career here, I started doing traffic for the station, which was scheduling all the PSAs, promos, elements, and shows. And right on the heels of that, I got promoted to the uh, role of production director for the station, which I thought was like the coolest job, but mostly because I got to make the legal ID for the top of the hour. Nice. So most of the legal ideas were usually like Long Island's oldest non-commercial radio station, WRHU Hempstead, Radio House University, 88.7 FM. Uh, we made some crazy, wacky top of the hours, you know, sound effects, movie clips, crazy music. It was a lot of fun. Didn't always go over so well with the community volunteers, but uh, we've made up since then. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so I, 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 when people talk about you, and they often do in, in glowing terms, I always think of like you are a radio enthusiast. You are someone who loves the medium. And I think we talked about that last time. Did you come to Hofstra specifically for the radio station? You must have had this in mind. Sure. I I came to Hofstra. I wanted to work in media. Before I had come to Hofstra, I spent two summers working for MTV Networks at their satellite uplink over in Hopog, New York. As a high schooler, they used to have something called vacation relief shifts. So the job literally was taking the, the, the D2 tapes or the digital videotapes popping them in the uh, the decks, and then lining them up. They had these big robotic arms that would come out and pull the tapes out of where you put them into position, and they would load them into these decks for air. So I kind of had an idea of what broadcast engineering was about coming into WRHU, but doing it just at a very uh, basic operator level. So when I got accepted to Hofstra, I was very excited about two things. I wanted to be a part of the music recording program at the school mm-hmm. and then also work within the and explore the opportunities within the, within the communications department. Well, upon getting to Hofstra, I realized that the radio station had a lot going on, and I got sucked in right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that that really defined my four years of my uh, undergraduate career here. The radio station was such a central role that I was really doing nothing else but radio. I'm surprised I actually gra- you know passed all my other <laughs> classes because I wasn't doing a whole lot of that. 
It's a, it's a familiar tale to be sure. Um, you mentioned you started your first position was traffic director, and I've noticed a pattern with people I've spoken to who are traffic directors. A, either they were at the station and they had no idea what it was and someone said, hey, do you want a job? And they took it. Or B, you were really into radio or programming and you knew what it was and you knew it was a step towards a, another position. Where do you fall on that scale? Well, I, I was honestly, it was kind of the first... It was one of those positions that nobody really wanted to do because it required mm-hmm. generating logs. And it was one of those things, if you didn't generate the log, then there'd be no paper log for the next day. And then nobody would know what to play. And you could actually, it was a visible n- deficiency if you didn't prepare the, the paperwork in time and you could actually get written up for it. So right. it was one of those jobs nobody really wanted to do. But hey, look, I was an eager guy. I wanted to advance. So I took the position. It was important though, because doing the log puts you in touch with the clock and the and the format wheel, the clock wheel of the station. So by doing the log, you begin to understand how the station gets its sound in terms of its programming, why, why things are played at certain times, why elements are, are scheduled. And that's really, you know, before we had automation here, that, that was physically telling the operator what button to press when. So you're sort of driving the master station compliance by having that position. I thought that was kind of fun because I had come from a, traffic environment working at MTV Networks. So I recognized how a log worked and, and what it was supposed to do. In my case at MTV, we were using it to, you know, tell computers and automation equipment to fire. But at WRHU, it was fit specifically telling the operator what to do. So I thought that was a really great first step. And then uh, that was it was a natural progression to then doing production. And then obviously later on, I was the station's music director. I thought I think it was a very good stepping stone into getting into the, the whole operation sense of the station. For the traffic director position, did someone approach you and ask you to do it, or is it something you applied for? Uh, I can tell you exactly what happened. E.J. Kritz, who uh, now lives in South Carolina, very mm-hmm. talented broadcaster who I believe is doing real estate, uh, transitioned into something a little more tangible, uh, came up to me one day in the hallway and said, hey, I know you want to be on the e- the AB. You keep asking me about a management position. Have I got a job for you? And I went, oh, he's got the job that nobody else wants. But he asked nicely and he laid it out in a way that made sense. You know, do this. It's just, it'll get you to the next position that you actually want. And I said, sure. And he wasn't, he was not incorrect. He didn't do me wrong. EJ took care of me. And uh, sure enough, when the next role came up that I was really interested in, uh, that, you know, I was able to make the case for that and say, hey, guys, I did this already. So now I'm ready for the next, uh, the next step up the ladder. So it was a really good uh, look at uh, a kind of a peek behind the curtain as to how management succession works how you you know you have to begin learning at a certain point in order to get to the next step or goal in your career hmm. if you'll indulge me a little bit I, I love to hear different eras of, of technology and the way things work and back in in my day in the 90s and before that there were handwritten logs with a, a PSA or a promo or something and then you'd have to go and get the card or put something on a reel to schedule that and your uh, when your time there was I think it was a little bit more uh, advanced it wasn't quite automation yet but did that involve anything different technically, or was it were things on a, the carts on computers? How did that work? I got to be honest; it was pretty. It was pretty primitive. It was just a step above handwriting. You had a <laughs> template that was stored in Microsoft Office, and you would just load up that week's template. And the goal was, as long as the shows weren't changing, you know, as long as the that week's schedule was intact, you go through. And if you know uh, at eight o'clock in the morning, the uh, Hempstead Public Library PSA had been scheduled the week before. You knocked that out. You had a run sheet of all the different elements that were loaded by production, and you picked something else to run in that slot. Obviously, you had the freedom to do that. We're not running commercials here, so right. we don't have to worry about traffic loading to uh, 
satisfy client demands of scheduling to translate those elements into revenue, but you're still, you know, basically dictating the sound of the station based around the flexibility you have in control of those elements. Mm. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure at the time that was, you know, as, as cutting edge as Hofstra Radio was going to get, but uh, it's funny how these things develop over time, but there's still commonalities uh, throughout. Um, sure. So you, when you mentioned pro- production director a couple of minutes ago, I could, I could feel the enthusiasm in your voice. You, you had an idea what this was. Is that, was that your prime directive next, what you wanted to do? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. See, I I love the idea of imaging. I like to be involved in the overall sound of the station, which is one of the things I love about being the station's chief engineer, because I am generating the sound of the station by building the architecture and shaping the harmonics before they hit the air. Well, as production director, it was the first real creative services role where I was actually generating creative audio. And because, again, this being a a college station or a, a, a training ground, the parameters were very loose. And to Bruce Avery's credit, even though he knew I was a little bit of a lunatic, uh, he gave me a lot of freedom to come up with things that would change the sound of the station. So every production director leaves their mark or their creative imagination, if you will, on a station sound, deciding how those elements, whether they're sound effects or they're music beds or voices, whether you, you're, you're picking the voices when you make the pre-recorded elements, deciding how all those things get put together and mixed is pretty exciting because you're essentially making the brand. You're building the station's brand from the listener's perspective. So in between all the shows and the individual hosts, the liners and the legal content and all the disclaimers and the sign-ons and sign-off, that's all at your beck and call. So it's a pretty powerful position, and I really, really enjoyed that being in that in that chair. Hmm. Um, you mentioned music earlier, and I believe you have a music background. How much did that factor into your work as production director? Oh, a lot. You know, I like to create things that are fun and exciting. I like big. When when I hear stuff on radio, you know, you, you go with what you know. So at the time, I was I was listening to everything that was on the New York band. So. I really liked the production that was on Z100, PLJ, and K-Rock. I thought back in 2001, 2002, those three stations really had magic coming out of the speakers. So I wanted to copy that as much as possible. So based on what the day part was, if it was in the morning, I'm trying to create things that are suitable for the, the morning drive show, wake-up call, the classics from Hofstra, you know, things that are a little more generic sounding, mm-hmm. whereas at night, when the experimental music show is on, I'm trying to pull audio that's complementing those different formats, whether it was hip hop or EDM, top 40, you know, uh, independent rock, electronic music, which was very, very young at the time. Uh, I'm going through sounds that I like or artists that I like and incorporating that those elements into the production I'm making. Two reasons. First of all, I like it. It's appealing to my ear. But I also was very cognizant of the fact that if you're playing audio uh, especially pre-produced audio uh, within the station's production elements, it's going to draw the listener in. The listener is going to think, well, if I'm hearing this in between the songs, then I'm also going to hear this in the content of the program that I'm listening listening to in this part of the station's day part. So that was a very big part of me reflecting upon music that I liked, but also being willing to step outside of my own uh, personal taste and saying, what, is, what do other people like? I can't mm-hmm. just saturate the crap out of the station 
with my own opinion, uh, my own oral opinion or acoustical opinion. I need to be able to program this and produce this in a way that's going to draw more listeners to this as a destination. So that's kind of where I was always coming from. And then as I moved into that music director role, you had to be really, um, you know, liberal with your music choices because you're you can't just pick things you like you got to remember there are all sorts of formats and people mm -hmm. especially when it comes to music people have opinions mm -hmm. people are very opinionated as to what sounds good to them so rather than push people into into the the box that i was in i had to break that box and push myself into listen to the scope of what other people liked so one more question about being production director. Were you working with show producers and the music director for the sounds of the imaging that you're working on? Or is that mostly just coming from you and what you thought was appropriate? It was a little bit of both. Uh, it depends, depends on the direct, you know, the, the, the show producer and their vision. Some show producers had were not concerned about it or not interested in it. I wouldn't even say interested, but just there weren't, it wasn't at the top of their mind. Mm -hmm. So they kind of said, look, you know, make something that you think is appropriate for this and do it. So that's kind of how I handled it. Now, if a producer came to me and said, look, I'm looking for something very specific or I want the liners and drops to complement this particular format and here's what I want it to sound like, well, then absolutely. I would work within the, the parameters and framework of their imagination. That's one of the nice things about doing production is you get to step inside of somebody else's creative mind. And there's nothing wrong with doing that and it actually makes you a better producer. Hmm. Very cool. Um, so music director, that's a fun job. I mean, I, I was never officially music director, but I spent a lot of time in the music office back in Memorial Hall. And when the new stuff comes in and you're working with producers, that's a lot of fun. I, I'm guessing from production director, you're thinking about that, that next when you apply for your senior year. Is that right? hundred percent. Um, I thought that was the, the best job and the most uh, expressive position because as the music director, you have tremendous power both on and off the air. On the air, you are clearing the music that then is being sub-cleared by the producers. You're acting as the clearinghouse that then provides the options that the producers below you can pick from. So certain things would come in and unless a producer specifically wanted an artist that I would do, I would just pass it through and tell them to play whatever they wanted. Uh, as long as it was within format, a lot of times people are not completely familiar with the the scope or variety of mm -hmm. material available. So, for example, if you had somebody that was producing the rock and roll, rock and roll oasis that just like '80s hair metal, well, that's fine. It's appropriate for the format, but you got to remember the listener is expecting to have a wider scope of material than just you know uh, Great White and Cinderella and Motley Crue. You know, you have to you have to widen the producer's scope by giving them more things to choose from. Uh, and then also kind of gently remind them that, hey, guys, you got to acknowledge that there's, you know, there's, I always quote PCU, you know, there was music recorded before 1989, Gutter. Um, but at the same time, the, the non-on-air perks of being the music director was you had control of the relationships with the music labels that were dealing with WRHU. So what that came with were concert tickets and backstage passes. Nice. Concert tickets and backstage passes, which were more valuable than any form of currency you could possibly imagine at the age of 20, 21 years old. You had the keys to the world outside of the radio station. So whereas other jobs are internal, as the music director, you could call up you know, your, your producers that you felt were worthy 
uh, and say, hey, guys, I got a pair of They Might Be Giants tickets for the Vanderbilt tonight, 8 o'clock. You want them? Oh, by the way, you're going to have to get me a 12-pack of beer, you know? <laughs> by the way, by the way, I never said that. But right, right. You know, in theory. <laughs> your, your lawyer just called and said that you never actually said that. That, yeah, that was not so, a thing that happened. <laughs> ChatGPT uh, stole my voice and said that. Right. But, right. Uh, but yeah, so it was, it was having a form of currency that you could use to incentivize uh, show producers and other station members to sort of reward them for, for performing within the parameters of their position. And I was pretty broad with, with how I ran that. You know, if, if people, I, I kind of left the producers to their own devices and, and said, look, this is your show. You do what you want. But again, if I saw them moving outside the framework of the format, maybe it was time to say, look, maybe you want to be a producer for a different show. Hmm. Would, that would be appropriate for the music you're selecting or maybe you want to retool the format that you're within because it's not being represented properly and if you have a jazz show and all you're doing is pray, playing you know a smooth jazz well maybe maybe that's not the right format for this you know if, or you need to widen your perspective of what it is you're you're clearing to be on the air because you're alienating your traditional jazz fans that are that are expecting to hear something when they tune into that format so i thought it was a, a very broad scope of of influence on the mm. sound of the station Absolutely. Who are some of the uh, the people you were working with as music director, maybe your program director, station manager, any of the producers that you might remember? Oh, 100%. We had a killer management team in that, that little window of time between 2000 and 2005. Uh, I mean, you know, we had Mike Petrillo as our station manager, who now is a very successful attorney and, and actually runs a Forex financial services fund out of New Orleans. Great guy, very proud WRHU alumni. Uh, Emily Tweedy, who was our, our PD at the time, also incredibly knowledgeable about music and Long Island nightlife, so a, an excellent mentor. And then later on in my in my position, uh, we had Andrew Falzone and Dustin Gervais, who mm-hmm. to this day are still working in broadcasting, both in New York. Dustin's working for CBS Radio News. Andrew's working for uh, New York City's uh, WNYE educational do do it uh media arm so these both guys are, are highly successful in their field and you could see that their management style uh at wrg was setting them up for success so two colleagues or four colleagues rather that i really had a great time collaborating with because uh, especially when you when you have a good relationship with people who are your supervisors and then uh, you know you're working together on things it's going to make the whole team much more powerful. We were, we were able to pass initiatives and collaborate on things that the general manager and the operations manager might not have always wanted to green light, but because we were excited about it and also we had enough votes on the EB, mm-hmm. we were able to, to kind of push a lot of our agendas through uh, unscathed. There was very few things I think that Bruce Avery ever vetoed that we came up with, and we put a lot of wild stuff in front of him. I bet. Um, Bruce told me a story in one of the interviews we did, and, and maybe you heard this in, in his telling, but he talked about this young man who showed up at his office door in a suit one day with a brief, briefcase and said, <laughs> I've looked at the day parts, and this is why we should do this, and, and, and there was a whole plan and schematics, and, and there was a whole thing about changing the format of the station, and, and that young man obviously was you, but he loved telling us, like, I didn't know who that was for a second because... I, I wasn't used to seeing him that way. Does that does that ring a bell? Is that is that one of the things you put in front of Bruce that you had to talk him into? Sure does. And I got to tell you something. We're still using that same clock to this mm. day. At the time, we our day part was tied up 
during the day with a lot of, uh, I'll say, institutionally suggested programming. So the during the time, yeah, during the time that students were commuting to the school at peak commuting times, maybe not peak drive time, but peak commuting times, they're tuning into the college station. They're hearing classical music and they're hearing jazz. And my case that I made to uh, Bruce and uh, our operations manager Joel Meyer at the time, I said, "Look." We're supposed to be a student-run radio station, and we're representing the students on campus with, quote-unquote, a student voice. However, it's pretty apparent that if students are tuning into the, their, their quote-unquote, student radio station and hearing classical music and jazz music, that that's the impression that most of the commuter students are going to have in the station. Sure, do the students at the School of Calm and the Dempster Rats, do they know what we're all about? Absolutely, because a lot of them are listening at night, driving home at night. But... We're, not, we're losing a potential audience of people that we could be engaging by just making a few simple format tweaks. Did we upset the classical musical audience? Yeah, we did. We moved the classic show to a different time that was a little less popular, you know, between 5 and 7 a.m. But you know what? People still listen because that audience seeked out that material as a mm. destination. And let's face it, an older audience might not be so concerned about waking up to classical music that they might actually like it. Whereas the students driving onto campus, uh, we expanded the morning show to include music because, hey, it's really tough to sit and talk for two hours without a break. Yeah. So we added uh, we added like a sort of like a, a hot AC uh, classic 80s format into the morning show music that was safe that a lot of people at the time had mass appeal. People were enjoying retro cuts. And then that format moved into like a top 40 format or they, they call off the charts, which is pre top 40 bands that haven't broken yet, but are destined top 40 radio that came right after Hodgson morning wake up call so now instead of tuning into the station and hearing classical music now you hear top 40 you hear dance music you hear cutting edge material that was much more appealing to the students driving on driving onto and off of campus the afternoon day part we shuffled the jazz around a little bit switched that around so it was now earlier and the middays when people were in class now in the afternoon we put an alternative rock format so now mm -hmm. students coming out of class that had been listening to the top 40 format in the morning Instead of hearing jazz and acoustic jazz, now they're hearing, uh, you know, they're hearing semi-sonic and they're, they're hearing Nirvana and they're hearing indie rock that's a little more appealing to their uh, musical tastes. So just those two shifts by taking a look at the programming schedule uh, enabled us to reach a, a wider audience that would be more engaged. So I, I definitely remember that meeting with, with Bruce. It was a, a kind of like a, a turning point, I think, in my own perspective of the station and how it worked. Hmm. Well, well, uh, a generation or two or three of, of previous Hofstra radio students, thank you for <laughs> your efforts and being the right person at the right time to get that done. Because gosh knows, a lot of us asked and pushed for that and it just didn't happen. So, so thank you for, for getting over that hill for us. We appreciate it. We definitely <laughs> <Right>. do. <laughs> um, so uh, that sounds like a story that, that is, is deeply personal and important to you. Are there other stories that you always tell or always think of when you think of your undergraduate time at WRHU? Well, here's the biggest thing that I, I can remember from that time. There was a tremendous amount of trust in the student leadership team because we were Operating within the guidelines of our positions, we were not breaking rules, but we were coming up with creative ways to enforce and apply actionable items into our and execute our agenda. And I will give the management, specifically Bruce Avery, a lot of credit for his um, 
sort of egalitarian view uh, and compassion to our ideas because he never really stood in the way of anything we wanted to do. During that time period, we took a lot of liberties with the on-air signal. We did things that really I don't think have happened since. We were doing club remotes, broadcasting live from venues like Limelight, uh, Virago and Rockville Center, Monterey's, uh, and on Hepset Turnpike. And, you know, I, obviously there's a fun factor in that. But I realized from a programming perspective, this was another way to get the station out into the community and connect with listeners that might want to make us a destination on the dial. So I have to give a lot of kudos to the the management, the adult management, for allowing us to execute that vision, because I think it was very successful for the time, especially when radio stations, commercial stations were very much out there doing things. So I'll never forget, you know, Bruce having a lot of trepidation <laughs> about mm -hmm. us using and in his in his words, using and abusing the remote gear, putting it to very um, uh, challenging environments, especially in, in bars and nightclubs where people had cocktails, mixed drinks, beers. But I was able to convince him that uh, we would be very caring and respectful of the equipment and protective. And that was, I think, what he needed to hear to allow us to do it. I mean, we were taking Comrex hotline units and Marty units out, which are cost thousands of dollars mm -hmm. uh, and, and putting them into uh, very tough suburban broadcasting environments. So kudos to them for letting us do that. Wow. Very cool. Um, so were you handling the remote equipment or were you setting this up? Who are other people you were working on these uh, events with? Well, funny enough, you know, the station, uh, to its credit, has it still has had and still has a training program for people to execute remote broadcasts. And those were the sports department members. Hmm. Sports department members are doing, you know, over the course of a week, you know, let's say a dozen Hofstra games between the, that time they had football, but also basketball, you know, men's and women's lacrosse, field hockey, wrestling. So you've got a group of people that are very familiar with using the equipment. Now, obviously, I was pretty technically inclined, so I had no problem uh, coordinating the telecom and getting the, getting the remote gear out in the field and making sure the audio was getting to and from where it had to go. But if, you know, if there was a situation where we had multiple things happening at once, I knew that our team was strong enough that I could throw it to another station member, even if they weren't totally on board with what we were doing, you know, sometimes uh, explaining things and, and asking nicely will get you what you need. Mm -hmm. And it also created a pretty amazing training opportunity because we're taking the equipment that people think of can do one thing and we're bringing it into a whole new environment and arena of programming. So that was a lot of fun looking at it that way. You have to look at your the strengths of the people that are on your team and say, what can you guys do? Maybe you're used to doing it one way, but hey, we could try something completely new and maybe it'll actually work. Wow. Um, I, I think that's a commonality through all the, the, the decades of Hofstra Radio is people being willing to learn and to try things and, and get a little bit outside their comfort zone. Some people are sports people or music people, but there's this opportunity and camaraderie, I think, throughout the generations of, yeah, I'll try that. Why not? And, you know, because I think there's, there's a, there's a support network and there's that camaraderie that exists throughout the generation. So it's nice to hear that, uh, that worked out. And it's, I'm going to guess you had a lot of fun doing it. Absolutely. There's, in my mind, there's nothing more fun than taking technology, especially audio and broadcast technology, and bring, pushing it to the extremes. You know, the, the College Station is such a great place for, for this, and we have not left that, that mantra. We have, at this point, WRHU has some of the finest equipment that a College Station could have. Yeah. 
because we're using all the stuff that the professional stations have. Uh, and we've been able to secure and apply a lot of the concepts that commercial stations use, except we're doing it on an even, I think in some cases, a more productive and wider level than many commercial stations. I mean, now in most city stations, unless it's a news or a sports station, they're rarely doing remotes. Whereas we're doing tons and tons of remotes. Plus we're using the concept of, of being a, a front end or a network head end to distribute programming to multiple stations where we do New York Islanders games mm-hmm. and other, other events. So I, for example, we, uh, we have an event on, on November 8th where WRHU is participating with seven other college radio stations for one day to create one gigantic New York City FM station. We're calling it the Big 88. So using our technology and thinking outside the box, we're using WRHU as the hub for all these stations that they're going to dial into us and be able to play their programming over our signal. And then we could play our programming over this gigantic network of FM stations. So for one day, we'll be able to reach something like, you know, 18 million listeners in the tri-state area just on FM. That's so cool. That's amazing. Wow. Um, So you said November 8th? November 8th from from 12 o'clock to 7 o'clock. It's going to be called The Big 88. It's all stations that broadcast between 88.1 FM and 88.9 FM. Although I did get a call from Ryder. They want to join there in the 90s. But we'll, we'll make an exception for them. Wow. Very cool. Well, well, best of luck with that. It, uh, I'm sure it'll be a, a really amazing opportunity for a lot of people to, uh, to do something, like you said, you know, outside of what they normally do. That's, that just sounds fantastic. Um, was there ever a time in all these events or other things where, where Bruce came back to you and said, uh, you shouldn't have done that, or, you know, I wish you would have done something a different way. Sure. Uh, Bruce was very focused on what the end product sounded like going out over the air. And there were a few creative liberties we took. Uh, one specifically, we did a remote from from our dorm room, funny mm-hmm. enough, using Comrex uh, hotline equipment. And the technology was very much intact. We executed, in my opinion, what was a, su- a successful broadcast. But Bruce came back and said, look, you got it done, but some of the stuff you guys did maybe didn't come across as professionally as I would have hoped. So here are my notes when you do it again, and that's the key piece, when you do it again, not don't do it again, Mm -hmm. but on your next crack at it, here's some positive constructive criticism you can use when you decide to uh, execute your next broadcast. So it was like, you know, don't do that. But also when you do it, here's how you should do it. If you're trying to get your bit or your presentation to to land the way you want it to. And going back and listening to those tapes, because I'm crazy and I record everything, Mm -hmm. I realized that he was very much correct in his evaluation. And I appreciated his approach, which was constructive criticism. Yeah. There's a, there's a couple of stories that, that I've discussed with, with previous folks who did the all night dorm room broadcast that they weren't supposed to do or kept the station on, on past. And Jeff Krause would say, look, you shouldn't have done that, but here's what was good about it. And here, what you should have done differently or you should have asked. And it's nice to see that, that spirit going on. And I'm reminded of a conversation I had with Kathleen Shortis uh, uh, about this. And she said, you know, it's funny now being an administrator and having these conversations with students is like, I, I lived through that. I did that once. And now I've seen it as, you know, 
uh, an adult and now as an administrator that these these things, these ideas keep coming up. And it's nice to see that spirit of encouragement from management and yourself to say, okay, you did that. Here's a better way to do it or, or here's, a, here's something to learn from it. Now go out and do it better. It's really nice to hear that. Oh, for real. Yeah. Um, are there, are there any other stories that, that maybe haven't, um, you know, been in the forefront of your mind as you're, as you're thinking back stories that maybe you haven't talked about or, or just kind of came back as you're, uh, recounting your days as an undergrad? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a ton of them, but, uh, you know, <laughs> one, one particular, uh, thing that I, I, I was thinking about earlier today, and I was actually talking, speaking about this with a WRHU alumni, I ran into an NAB is the whole concept of the anarchy show. See, I loved anarchy because it was an open format show, play whatever you want, do whatever you want. And the idea was to kind of be as weird as possible. Mm -hmm. And we were, we were kind of recapping some of those crazy anarchy broadcasts, which would know, be from like 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday to 3 a.m. when like the least number of people are listening. Most people on a Sunday night are sleeping, getting ready for work. So that was a great time to let the college students sort of you know, take, take their hand on, put on the rudder and just let it rip. And, uh, you know, we, we did some wild, wild stuff. On one of the anarchies, we, we, did a, we had like a fake wrestling match uh, in the studio, <laughs> which I, I don't know if anybody's ever done, but we actually had, you know, microphones set up and people actually, you know, wrestling on the air, which I thought was, was pretty funny. And we managed to not break, well, too many things. But we, you know, even had sound effects that were <laughs> real Foley effects, like the shattering of glass bottles over like a person's head, which was actually shattering a bottle over a, a two by four. And then, of course, we had to clean the glass up later. But, wow. uh, you know, stuff like that. I mean, that really just when you can let your imagination run wild, that's what college radio is all about, is all the things you cannot do when you're working within the parameters of a sponsored format or a station that's selling airtimes. So you know, the, the advertiser might not appreciate your antics at the college station. You have a lot of liberty to do those things. Wow, that's that's great. That's uh, do you have audio of that? Did you record that uh, wrestling I, match? I sure do, and I'll send it to you. It's pretty fun. <laughs> very cool, very cool. Um, I know music's very important to you. Is there a song that kind of defines your era as an undergrad, or an event, or a, a, a club uh, event that you did that that kind of defines uh, in your mind your time there? Well, it's funny. Uh, every everything I think that was. I was enjoying at the time that was new to me was very retroactive. A lot of classic eighties hits and early nineties hits that were considered to be alternative. And some of those bands that had kind of peaked in the nineties enjoyed a, a popularity of resurgence in the early two thousands. One of them being the counting crows, mm -hmm. which they, you know, obviously were huge in the early to mid nineties. Then they kind of disappeared for a little bit and, then in 2002, they released the record Hard Candy. So that was very exciting for me because I, I really enjoyed their 90s stuff. And I always kind of thought they were a definition of what 90s alternative, sort of middle of the road alternative, uh, maybe only other band being like the Gin Blossoms. But mm -hmm. that radio friendly jangle rock uh, was supposed to be. And so when they took another crack at it in the early 2000s, uh, I was all in on it, and I even got a chance to go to one of their shows. I got backstage passes as the music director and got to meet the band and get some audio drops, and I have, you know, the band members giving the station call letters and that kind of stuff. So that was that was sort of like uh, the soundtrack, if you will, for me personally. I always tried to find a, find a way to work that material in if I was doing Oasis or even Airwave. 
because mm-hmm. I just thought it was fun and it was connectable and relatable. The, you know, the lyrics are very angsty and appropriate for people that were going, kind of going through their late teens and entering soft adulthood. I, I really connected with that. Yeah, there's the the famous uh, Simpsons episode with Homer Palooza, and it's like you know making teenagers depressed is you know like shooting fish in a barrel. It's, but you know it's 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 there for a reason. It's because we want that music at that age. We want that sound, and we want that. That's very cool. Um, thank you for sharing this. Um, I, I, I imagine I know the answer to this, and but I but I ask it anyway because sometimes people get wrapped up in station business or, or there's too much going on and, and you feel like, Oh, maybe I you know want to step away. Was there ever a point where you're like, ah, this isn't working for me or I don't love it. Or were you fully invested the whole way through? Oh, I was all in from, from the beginning to the end. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do at the end of this college journey, but I knew at the time this was a unique experience and opportunity to stretch out and grow. And uh, I really don't think that there was a time where I was saying, no, I'm not sure if I want to do this. It was always that I definitely want to do it. I just don't know to what capacity I will be doing it when I'm out of here. Obviously, there's always a lot of gloom and doom when people talk about the media business. And yes, it's highly competitive and things have changed uh, in the way that people consume media has shifted dramatically over the last 20 years, dramatically, more so, I think, than in the 20th century. I mean, consuming end-to-end linear audio and video products was pretty much standard practice uh, from the 1920s up until the beginning of the 21st century. Suddenly, with the advent of streaming audio and uh, and audio and video on demand, the game changed. So uh, for me, you know, I, I watched that shift begin to happen, but instead of doubting that I was going to be a part of it, I said to myself, well, I better make sure I know what's going on because I want to be in this when I'm out of here. So I saw where we were going as a business. And instead of you know saying, well, it's never going to work and uh, everybody's getting fired, I said, there's got to be a place for me when I'm out of here because I just love this so much that this can be a way to make money, has to be a way to make money. Mm. If I wasn't doing this, I really don't know what else I'd be doing. Yeah. What, did you have conversations with Bruce and Joel back then about the way the, the, the business was changing? Was that something that you guys were consciously talking about or was it just sort of in the background as noise? Uh, we definitely discussed it. Uh, but I think Joel being younger at the time, I think Joel was in his late 20s when I was working with him. Joel had a much better understanding of where we were going than Bruce did. What Where Bruce's strength was as our general manager, and pretty much up until the end of his tenure as the general manager of WRHU, was reminding everybody that no matter what the shift in consumption was or the shift in product, that creating good-sounding, well-put-together, well-executed content was going to be important no matter how the consumer was getting it. Mm. So while we could watch the business change and watch listener habits change and watch a shift from linear product uh, to on-demand audio products such as podcasts and, and VOD, uh, the the rule was that the content still had to be at the highest level that you could possibly create, or else the listener or audience would not be would, would not be engaged in it. They might be able to find it, but they're not going to stick around and listen to it or watch it because it's not going to be very good. Hmm. 
Interesting. Cool. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, as an undergraduate, was there something that you would hope to do and maybe didn't get to do it because you didn't have time or maybe the technology wasn't there? Was there something you hoped you could, you could pull off, but, but couldn't, you know, one thing I didn't get to do a whole lot of when I was an undergrad, I didn't get to do a whole lot of live audio mixing of music, hmm. which is really kind of what I wanted to do. Uh, when I came to Hofstra, the whole radio thing, pulled me by the hair and dragged me into the other side of the wall. But <laughs> audio is audio. Music is music, whether it's being whether you're transmitting it, transmitting it or capturing it or mixing it. It's still you're still part of the process. I would have liked to have done, I think, a little more of the audio production from a musical perspective while I was an undergrad and like live mixing for TV, you know, taking a, if a band is being shot on camera mixing down the band and then putting the stereo mix together to go out over the over the video channel. Uh, and I've done a lot of that since then. But uh, as an undergrad, I didn't really have a lot of opportunity for that because the program or programs we had here didn't have a whole lot of space for that anyway. There were only one or two things that would happen a year that would be that kind of large scale production. Now, having said that, since I've started working at WRHU, I have tried to expand the scope of that end of the production angle because i know that a lot of students like it mm -hmm. and music is very connectable for people that are interested in audio there's you're either a sports person a news person or a music person but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case and the more opportunities you provide for people especially when they're creative opportunities the more likely it is they'll they'll be engaged with it mm -hmm. so i've tried to to make up the fact that i didn't have it i'm trying to create it so that the students here do have that opportunity mm. Fantastic. Um, during your time as an undergrad, is there something that stands out as your biggest accomplishment or your proudest moment? You know, I can tell you uh, that the blackout of 2003, yeah. uh, this was a very unusual opportunity for WRHU because it did not actually involve WRHU FM, the terrestrial facility. However, WRHU, the spirit of WRHU captured the moment beautifully. Uh, Hofstra at the time, and in, in many cases still uh, to this day, did not have a reserve power generating facility for the radio station or the comm building. So during the blackout of 2023, when everything died mm -hmm. and the power went out in the building, that was it. WRHU FM was effectively off the air. However, at the time, I was also working as a board op for WLIR 92.7 Garden City and Party 105 WXXP uh, Cal Calverton Roanoke, which had their studios right around the corner on Stewart Avenue. So I go out to my car in the parking lot. I flip on LIR. Sure enough, boom, the station's on the air. Now you can tell that they're running on some kind of limited power because I flip to the other stations and they're all carrying the same programming. So I'm saying to myself, okay, obviously they have an issue too, but they're maintaining their on-air product. They're still running stop sets, the advertisers are getting, you know, the inventory is getting put out over the air. They're still making money. So just for fun, I jump in my car. There's no traffic lights on Hepstead Turnpike. Jump in the car, drive down the street, go over to Stewart Avenue and go into this radio station. There's no power in the building. The emergency lights are flickering in the hallway. I go up to the, the third floor, you know, walk up the stairs, and I hear the screaming of a generator. Sure enough, they've got a little Honda generator on the roof, and they've got one studio lit up, just enough power to get the you know, the, the, the automation machine up to play commercials, get a couple of CD players and the mixer powered up and get the microwave links out to the transmitter sites up and running so they can maintain 
connectivity with the transmitter sites that are obviously running on diesel generators. Wow. So John Caracciola, who is a proud WRHU alumni and a now oh, owner of JVC Media, which owns those uh, Party 105 and uh, w, uh, WBON and uh, you know the Long Island News Radio 1039. Uh, you know, I see John. I you know I knew John from doing stuff at RHU and at at, at uh, TMO, which was the the group that owned those stations at the time. I said to John, I said, look, I said, I, we don't have a radio station, but we do have are about 40 students with battery powered cassette decks and laptop computers with primitive editing software on them. I said, you know, this would be a great opportunity to get some of the WRHU student news work on the air, even though we don't have a radio station. So mm -hmm. He says, you know what? That sounds like a great idea. Cut up some packages, bring them over and we'll air them. So sure enough, our news team went out with no electricity in Nassau County. Went out, got you know actualities and people on the street. Uh, they went and you know, They were able to get a couple of politicians on the phone that had phones that still worked. Uh, people from emergency services. We got the information, put it up onto a basic cassette tape. I ran the tapes back over to LIR, and within fifteen to twenty minutes, those tapes were running on the air with our WRHU lockout on those radio stations. So it was so cool to hear you know our our student voices on the air on Long Island commercial stations because they didn't have the ability to get the news. We could right. get them the news and they were ha very happy to let us run it and lock out the packages with WRHU. So for, for the couple of days there, our news was being, was the only real radio news source for those, for those radio stations. We were the news department for three commercial stations on, on Long Island. I could not have been prouder or more excited for our team and the people that were involved in that broadcast. I thought they did one hell of a job. And in my mind, that was one of our finest moments as a radio station. Yeah, that that's amazing. And not only to get that done, but to come up with the idea of saying we have this resource and you need content and, and you need these reports and we have the people to do them. To make that connection on the spot is is just amazing. Uh, so, yeah, I can I can definitely understand that being uh, an extremely proud moment. And a number of people have, have spoken to me about that. And it's just uh, it's absolutely tremendous. Now, one of the things I've always noticed with a lot of these stories is that in times of crisis or in times of emergency, people run to the station and you've got all these students who are looking to do something. And, and it's, it's just a mark of, I think the station and the management and the type of people that come to the station that during a time of emergency, people go to the station to be part of a team, to be productive. And, and I, I don't, I've, I've asked a number of people this, is it, is, is it all of this stuff about Hofstra radio or is it something about the people that come there that make us run to the station in an emergency like that to be useful? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of both. See a radio station or a TV station is a unique place because by the nature of the system, a radio station or TV station is interconnected with other media outlets. So you have tie lines, whether it's telecom or, or video or even just uh, transcoding services that give you access to information ahead of where other media outlets may actually be reporting it. So you get the, the raw data first before it's then sort of controlled and massaged and put out over the air. Hmm. Uh, a good case in point for that is on 9-11 when I woke up and saw that, you know, Tower 2, it was no more, and Tower 1 was, you know, blowing flames and smoke into the air, the first thing that I did was I went to the radio station because I just didn't know what else to do. It, you know, 
broadcasters or people that want to broadcast want to be of service in times of crisis. And it's not because I think we're looking for recognition. It's because we're looking at our base uh, passion is to communicate with others. So no better time to do that than during a time of crisis. And I was very lucky in my time at WRHU that we I saw that spirit in action uh, multiple times. It happened you know, during 9-11. It happened when the space shuttle Columbia blew up. On a Saturday at 8 a.m., by 8.30, the news department was in. We were cutting packages and getting stuff over the air. Happened, again, during the blackout. There were a number of news stories that drew people to the radio station. Uh, and, again, part of that is because your innate, your, your instinct is to, as a broadcaster, is to go where the action is. But also, it's the spirit of the place and the fact that the community of the station is comforting and the station is important to people that they want to be around others that are like-minded in times mm-hmm. of crisis. Yeah. And that's a very special thing about WRHU is the first instinct is to come to the station. Just as recently as the summer when the Long Island serial killer story broke, the first thing I did when I saw that news alert at 5 o'clock in the morning on my phone, I called our professional residents, Duali, and said, hey, let's mobilize. We have something happening 15 minutes from the radio station. Let's cover it. So we had a discussion as to how we were going to cover it. Luckily, I happen to have all the remote gear from my other job, from Salem Communications in my car. I had a, I had hotspots. I had computers. I had a full Comrex system with microphones. Well, within about 45 minutes, I was set up right next to the ABC news truck. You know, I even borrowed some power from them. Thanks, ABC. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were up and running with a mobile site with you know direct lines to the station. We could go live right over the FM using the Comrex. And wouldn't you know it, uh, my parent company for Salem, New York, Salem uh, Radio Network, well, they needed some coverage, too. So I called up the guys at Salem and said, hey, I'm standing outside the guy's house with a microphone. What's the first thing you think they said? Oh, my God, let's go live right now. <laughs> so, you know, by, you know, whatever the time was, let's say 9 a.m., I'm broadcasting live from my car and I'm 20 feet away from Rex Harriman's house. And I'm interviewing neighbors and I've got audio that I'm recording on a flash recorder. And suddenly we're doing it live, local and mobile. So that's and within, you know, an hour or two. Suddenly we have an army of students with, with recorders and microphones and headphones, and they're running around getting audio. You know, talk, talk to anybody, anybody you could find. What did you know about the guy? What did you see? Tell the story. Once you have the story, bring the story to the listener. That's where the value is. And my God, what a great example of that. It's the fact that 20 years later, it's still the same way it was. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you, you hit on a lot of really great things there. It's it's that that spirit of service. It's the people who want to communicate. And then the fact that you're trying all these things and experimenting with things, it gives people that sort of encouragement to, to jump in when they're not sure what the result is going to be or what the story is going to be. You're still going after it and you're still attacking it. And that's, uh, that's fantastic to see that has continued uh, over the ages. Thanks for sharing that. Um, to go in a different direction during your time as an undergrad, is there is there a funniest moment? Is there something that still makes you laugh to this day that happened while you were there? <laughs> oh man, there's there's a lot of them, uh, but I I think one of the one of the funniest things that we probably did were uh, you know uh, doing different gags at the end of the year banquet, which is a great way to build student community uh, and 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 really get the get the group to come together as one for a night you drop all of your sort of predispositions about things and you just have a chance to get together and and have a laugh and um you know bruce always bruce avery always took these things in stride there was one night that uh 
one particular banquet that one of the station members decided that, you know, it was the end of his time here at, at Hofstra and he was going to go out with a bang. So after drinking about five bottles of red wine, uh, he, you know, started at one end of uh, Westbury Manor, which is a big, long banquet hall. And at the other end of these big glass doors and at the you know, outside the glass doors uh, is a big concrete water fountain, big Italian style concrete and marble water fountain. So shouting at the top of his lungs, you know, I'm going to be a fish. Uh, this station member who will remain, remain nameless, but uh -huh. those that were there know who he is, took off full speed right down the center of the banquet hall, you know, past the tables, across the DJ booth, through the doors and took a swan dive right into the water fountain. <laughs> uh, the the look on uh, the the face of the uh, adult administrators and also the catering hall staff was priceless. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in my life because I don't know if they'd ever seen uh, a, a member of the party actually decide to turn their water fountain into a swimming pool. But for one night, we sure did it. Wow. Wow, that's great. And I, I'm assuming there were no major injuries in that attempt to become a fish. Uh, only only injuries of pride, I think. That would be about it. <laughs> excellent, excellent. That's the best result. Um, what do you miss most about your days as an undergrad at WRHU? You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, um, not a whole lot because be, working here, uh, right. I still kind of feel like I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still part of that educational process. I'm just on the other end of it now, but I really enjoyed the excitement that you would feel around the station as you were getting towards the end of the spring semester, as the days got longer, the sun would stay out later, and you were pulling all-nighters. And it, I just love that feeling of walking out of the station at 1 or 2 in the morning with something to be rendering in the production studio, and I'd have something else playing on the air, just going outside and having a moment of peace. Hmm. Uh, just with, the, with thinking about the adventure that would lay ahead. It was such a beautiful feeling of promise and excitement. Uh, just standing there and, and, and just taking a moment to reflect on the amount of power you had and control you had as a, as a 21 or a 22 year old and thinking about how to make that extend into your future. So that, that feeling of, it, of, of a little bit of apprehension, but also confidence, man, that's something you really, you don't get to enjoy as much as you get older. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. It's that, it's that creative moment when you've got all these ideas and you've got these tools to, to work on it. And the possibilities are, are not quite endless, but there are so many possibilities and so many opportunities. And what a great way to put that. Thank you for sharing that. Fantastic. Um, if you could time travel for 60 seconds and go back and see 18 year old Andy, is there a piece of advice you would give him? Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, don't don't spend so much time worrying about what comes next. Hmm. I think taking taking a moment to to stop and enjoy and savor that period of time and, and taste it like a fine wine and not be so concerned about the preparing for the future. I know it's a double edged sword because you want to be able to be prepared to maximize your experience, but just slowing down for a minute and stopping that time and just saying, I'm here right now. Let's be here now. I think that would be the, the best advice I could give myself because I do a lot of that now. Mm. I be sure to savor the moment, not, not rush through it, worrying about the next thing. Yeah, those are wise words and it, it, it's good advice at, at any age. Would 18-year-old Andy have li listened to that? 
Probably not. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, you know, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to try, but it's uh, we put that out there. Um, I, I I usually ask this question to wrap up, and we know that you're so involved with Hofstra Radio, and you're so involved with with so many amazing things. Uh, following what you're doing on Facebook and 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 seeing things, um, but is is there anything in particular? It could be something minute. It could be a big idea. What did you bring from your time? as an undergrad at Hofstra Radio into your professional and adult life with you? Well, I think the, the biggest thing that I took with me was understanding the spirit of community building and supporting, whether it's might not be your vision, but supporting the vision of others and understanding that if you do that in a, in a perfect world, those people will be there to support your vision and concept. Uh, you know, that was something I took away from WRHU, and I've tried to bring that into every professional environment I'm in now because I realized that people have their own vision for things. They have their own passions and drives, and a lot of times they line up with yours, and sometimes they don't. But you can't look at something somebody else wants to do and poo-poo it because you don't agree with it. Right. The best outcome is to help that person get to where they want to be because if you can help them, you can bet on it they're going to turn around and help you and even if they don't somebody else will maybe see that you've done that and take the time to assist you to get whatever goal you have whether it's short-term mid-term or long-term accomplished so the spirit of teamwork team building and then executing things collectively is absolutely going to serve you well in any postgraduate environment you're in wow that's great stuff Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing all these stories. I, I feel like I could throw questions at you for days and just be endlessly entertained by your stories, your enthusiasm, uh, your experiences. They're, they're just absolutely tremendous. And I know that everyone really uh, appreciates all the things that you do for the station and the community and all, all the people are involved. So thank you so much for doing this. This, this is great. And uh, I'm going to figure out a way to get more stories out of you. I don't know how yet, but we'll figure it out. Oh, you know, usually uh, uh, beer and our hard liquor will uh, will help that. All right, they're, fair. Really, they're really good. They're really good for jarring the memory. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, this is great. Thank you for sharing your time and uh, and best of luck with all the things that you're doing. We're we're really excited to to see all of it happen. Anytime, Brian. And thank you. Thank you for taking the time to put these together because you're capturing that that spirit and community that sometimes uh, people people wouldn't be aware of. But you, your your work is imperative here, and I can't thank you enough for doing it.